This is the MLW Radio Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. Welcome back to another episode of Overbooked. My name is Mike Freeland. We cover the extremely unauthorized story of ECW. As you know, uh, the last time we left, we were covering Chapter 10. We've had some amazing stories so far that have uh, been covered in this book. If you would like to share with us some of your favorite stories, favorite chapters, things we've covered in this book, by all means, hit us up on social media. You can hit us up at uh, Twitter, on Twitter, I should say, at FRM Podcast. You can hit me up at Mike Freeland. Go ahead and tag Jerry and Mikey in as well. We would love to hear maybe what some of your favorite stories are so far that we've covered in the book. All right, now... We did not have an episode that dropped yesterday because of the holiday. That's why we are dropping an episode today. We hope that everybody enjoyed the holiday weekend and uh, everybody enjoyed maybe spending some time with family members and uh, remembering the reason for Memorial Day. All right, let's get right into it. Chapter 11 is entitled Growing Pains. So basically what we're doing is we're going to be picking up our story here in the summer of 1996. So, the development of the Dudleys was still a top act in ECW. But the the group got a lot less funny here in the summer of 96 because Paul decided to add another member to the group, and that was Devon Dudley. The way they worked in Devon was he was trying to go ahead and compete and wrestle away control of the group from Big Dick Dudley. Now, people who know Devon when he came into the company... Uh, knew Devon Hughes as one of the nicest guys, nicest wrestlers, nicest people you could meet in the ring. Um, he was a professional in all ways, shapes, and forms. Uh, it was interesting because as I was reading this chapter, um, there was a great story that I'm going to go in here too. And there was a friend of Perry Saturn who had come in and he was going to be doing uh, the timekeeping and he was going to be the ringing the bell. And this was his story. I was a timekeeper at a house show. I rang the bell for the Eliminators Dudley match when I wasn't supposed to. Now, his name is Don Libel, said, Bubba got so hot that he threw a chair at me. I said, screw it, I'm out of here. I've been around wrestling since before this guy was born, and I don't know what's happening around here. Well, after the match, uh, he went up to his friend Perry Saturn, and he said, Perry, what's going on? This is absolutely crazy. So when he got in the back, um, Perry actually ended up pulling Bubba aside and said, listen, man, you know, you really shouldn't have done that. This guy was pretty upset about that. Well, anyway, Bubba comes on over uh, and says, you know what, man, I'm really sorry. I was just working. And um, I guess that's the thing that made ECW so popular was that a lot of times you didn't know. You didn't know if somebody was legitimately upset or somebody was working. But I think that's what made ECW so popular is because you couldn't really tell. You couldn't really tell what was going on and what wasn't going on. Um, but Libel said that, you know, he said, wow, he's, that was interesting. He said, in addition to Perry pulling Bubba aside and, and talking to me, at 9 o'clock the next morning he got a phone call and it was Bubba again. And he also apologized 
and he wanted to let him know that uh, he was very sorry for what had happened and the fact that he upset him. ECW, you know, was not just a promotion that could scare timekeepers or could scare referees. Uh, it, it was intense even for the photographers who were taking pictures of ECW as well. And I think if we all remember the different magazines like Power Slam and Wow and Rampage, and actually ECW had their own official magazine at the time, um, but a lot of things came with a with a very physical price. So George Thanos, who is a uh, ringside photographer who got pictures uh, for years for different things, shares a story. He says, and I quote, Man, I've been put through a table by Perry Saturn, attacked by Terry Funk, gored by Rhino, he said. In fact, Terry Funk attacked me once. I was just in the corner with my camera, and he grabbed me, knocked me down, and he yanked my shirt. Then he looked at me and said, Sorry, brother. He and Taz were both the nicest guys in the world, but until you got to know them, they scared the hell out of me. You know, and I think, once again, just like different people who are, you know, working the show as well, they tried to keep the realism as close to, I don't want to say close to real as possible, but they wanted to sell it to the fans that the product was chaotic, that the product and the angles could bleed over into other people who were by ringside as well. And I think, once again, it was that level of uncertainty that made people keep coming back for more. So, Heat Wave 1996 was happening on July the 13th. Now, the show drew an announced crowd of about 1,500 people. Now, it had gone much, much higher uh, in the recent years just because ECW was starting to get a big stronghold. So now it really wasn't uncommon for the ECW arena to start doing sellouts. But unfortunately, because of the contracts that Paul had made with the talent, no matter how well they were doing on some of these house shows, which would have been good for a show, uh, they were still in the negative. Um, to make the shows... Even more profitable, ECW had to find a bigger venue. So Paul Heyman and Todd Gordon were talking, what could we do? We need to find a way to make some more money. We need to find a way that we can, you know, not only pay the talent, but we can actually turn a profit for the company here. But after many deliberations and discussions, Paul Heyman decided that uh, he would refuse to hold shows anywhere else in Philadelphia uh, that wasn't in the ECW arena. Uh, back in 1998, he would go on to continue this conversation when he did an American Online chat with fans. Heyman would go on to tell the fans of ECW in this AOL chat, and I quote, Despite the advice of lawyers, despite the advice of advisors, despite the advice of accountants, despite the advice of associates, I have absolutely positively no desire to leave the ECW arena. I will admit that we can draw far more people in a more centrally located venue in Philadelphia. We can make more money. Playing to a far larger crowd. But the ECW arena is home to us, despite consistent problems and despite consistent interferences against running there. Until the ECW arena pushes us out, we will continue to run there. I don't ever see myself making a conscious decision to abandon that place that we call home. So let's pause here for a quick second. So Paul's a businessman. Paul realizes that, you know, you got this big, fat, huge payroll, 
and that even if you pack 1,500 people in there, standing room only, everybody's packed like sardines, and there's a decent gate for a show, you're not going to come anywhere near being able to cover any of that. The payroll, the lighting, all of that kind of stuff, the ring crew, everyone, unless you move into a bigger arena. Now, you would think that Paul would look at that and say, you know what, maybe we do need to at least revisit some of these other opportunities. Maybe we do need to look at something different. But it seems like Paul's loyalty to the ECW arena, which gave ECW uh, their namesake, and it gave them a place that people would be able to come to them. And it was kind of like their mecca, you know. He was so loyal to that concept, to the fans, to the arena itself, that he refused to go anywhere else. And in some ways, I understand it. In some ways, I don't understand it. This is still a business, first and foremost. And if your company could potentially go under because you are not making enough money to cover all your expenses, at what point in time does loyalty loyalty to an arena become detrimental to your existence? Just my opinion. Well, anyway, we move on into the summer. So we're covering Heat Wave 1996. Now, Heyman decided that he wanted to continue to beef up his top heel, which was Shane Douglas. So Heyman decided that there was only one way to do that. He needed to give Shane Douglas a manager, and he decided that Francine would be perfect to put with Douglas. So Francine originally had a stint as the manager of the Pitbulls, but that ended at Heat Wave 96 in a four-way match uh, for Chris Jericho's ECW TV title. So now you have Francine together with Shane Douglas, we know that would go on to be one of the most iconic duos in wrestling, in, even specifically in ECW itself, just because of the way that they worked with each other, and they were gold when they were with one another. It's clear that Paul knew exactly what he was doing when he decided to go ahead and take Francine away from the Pitbulls and go ahead and put her with Shane Douglas because he was trying to build up the feud between Pitbull number 2 and Shane Douglas. So for those of you who are not super familiar with the situation here, let's kind of go through it and uh, I'll kind of fill you in on what was going on. So Pitbull number two had been feuding with Shane Douglas since Douglas had broken uh, his partner's neck uh, months earlier. Now, it was not an injury angle. Uh, Gary Pitbull Wolf, Pitbull number one, legitimately suffered a broken neck in a match against Shane. Now, Gary harbored bitterness towards Douglas for a long time after the incident. But Heyman turned the injury into one of the most scary, visceral, memorable moments in ECW history. So what Heyman did was he booked Wolf, who had mostly recovered uh, in a match involving he and Shane Douglas. Now, Douglas uh, went ahead and confronted Gary Wolf in the ring, and he, he ended up grabbing Gary's halo. So for those of you who may not be familiar with what a halo is, after you have neck surgery, a lot of times doctors will put a halo on you, and it basically keeps the neck in place. And there are lots of bolts and screws and whatnot to kind of make sure that that stays in place. Well, he decided to go ahead and uh, grab the halo and yank it and throw Gary to the ground. And a lot of people believe that it definitely sparked the the feud, but it definitely was something that was not scheduled to happen. Gary knew nothing about it, and it really upset Gary because at the time, you know, as Paul had said, he was not 100% uh, 
uh, healed from it, and it led uh, to massive, massive heat. It got a lot of notoriety in the wrestling publications as well. It was good and bad for ECW from the standpoint of it was an angle that was looked at as a, a work shoot, but like I said before, you know, Gary was definitely not on board with that. On the flip side, another feud that was coming to a close in the summer of 1996 with the Rob Van Dam feud he had with Sabu. Now, Sabu defeated the High Flyer in a stretcher match where the loser must be carted off in a stretcher. Well, after Van Dam missed a big dive, which Style described as one high-risk move too many, Sabu's win only built up the anticipation for the inevitable showdown with Taz. But the match with Van Dam became an anticipated affair of its own. As the two men began the match, the ring ropes broke, leading to an hour delay while crews started working to repair the ring. Now, that was a problem because all the people who had paid attendance were becoming very, very antsy. And Paul knew backstage that if the match can't continue, you have to do something. And without the use of the ring, you couldn't just have people brawling everywhere. So he decided to take a risk. And he decided to do something that is known is legendarily known in the ECW arena, and that was with Kimona Wanalea. And she went ahead into the crow's nest that overlooked the ECW arena, where Joey Styles did the play-by-play, and Kimona kept the crowd's interest by performing an exotic dance, shimmying around poles and bumping and grinding as if she was still working in the gentleman's club. So... A lot of people who had been there said it was one of the more racier things that they had seen in ECW, and it was. If you were there and you had seen it, it was pretty provocative. Even Mikey and Jerry have said that it was uh, it was something to see, and they won't really go into great detail here, but Kimona actually was an exotic dancer in the gentlemen's clubs, so this was something that really wasn't too far out of character at all for her to do that. Um, But we'll find out a little bit more about uh, Kimona before this chapter ends. Interestingly enough, Kimona went out and performed up in the crow's nest and danced uh, scantily clad for the audience until the ring crew had finally gotten the ring back together. That main event did not resume until 12.30 in the morning. So you can imagine that that delay was definitely... Uh, it, it had its impact on wrestling fans. Anybody who's been to the ECW arena knew you know, how hot it was, and it was not the biggest building in the world, and people were stacked like sardines. So Paul knew that he was going to have to throw something out there to at least seem like it was an attempt to make up for the fact that the ring had broken, even though fans knew that, you know what, that kind of thing happens. But at the end of the day, if you got 1,500, almost 2,000 people in a very small, packed building, Uh, and the temperature's over 100 degrees in there, going to have to do something. Well, in the same context as the stretcher match that Sabu and Rob Van Dam were having, there was a lot of conversation back in the time whether ECW was going too extreme, going too far. High-risk moves with wrestlers started to catch up. Tommy Dreamer, now the hardcore innovator of violence, hurt his ribs in a September 13, 1996 match in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, but he never missed any time. Dreamer wrestled the next night in the ECW arena, but a few years later, he would be nursing a variety of nagging injuries. 
September 14th show was a particularly painful one for more than just Tommy. British wrestler Johnny Smith banged up his knee in a preliminary match. Doug Furness broke his nose in another one. And uh, Shane Douglas collapsed after he followed his own match with a run-in in Ravens match versus Pitbull number two in a non-air-conditioned ECW arena, which caused a lot of discomfort for the wrestlers over the years. Now, the injuries started before the show, and uh, the trainer for ECW, Kareem Horton, even broke his leg as he slipped off the top rope while practicing. You know, Mikey and Jerry have often talked about how, you know, with wrestling comes injuries, and there's not a whole lot you can do about that. You can be as safe as you want to be, but injuries and accidents are always going to happen. ECW was a little bit different from either the WWE or the WCW at that time, just because, in my opinion, a lot more liberties were taken at the time. Cheer shots were much more rampant in ECW than they were, let's say, in WCW. Uh, the Attitude Era really hadn't started uh, ramping up yet. We're still talking summer of 1996, so WWE still wasn't even really doing a whole lot of the super violent stuff yet. But they would follow suit and things would get intense. But yeah, I mean, when you hear about all these things, these injuries and how if you didn't wrestle, you didn't get paid. It wasn't like you had a, a downside guaranteed contract. And Mikey had said many times that he would wake up in the morning and not be able to move, but he would take aspirin and he would ice himself down and he would try to start moving. And by the time showtime was about eight o'clock that night, he could go out there and with the adrenaline pumping through his veins with all the fans, he was able to get through the match, but definitely still paid the price after the show was over. Now, the ECW was not the only uncomfortable place where the promotion held shows. In Ross Traver, Pennsylvania, the building was known as the Ice Arena. Now, it was a minor league hockey venue. Now, according to fans, all they did was roll carpet out on the ice. And uh, wrestlers still took huge impacts that were barely cushioned by very thin carpeting and their bodies would be bludgeoned on top of that hockey ice. In particular, there was a show that ended up happening in 1999 where a fan was actually sitting two seats behind two individuals who would become synonymous with hardcore wrestling, which later became known as Juggalo Wrestling, and that was Violent J and Shaggy Two Dope. Now, these guys were known as the Insane Clown Posse. They were independent rappers, but more importantly, they were lifelong wrestling fans who would turn up at ECW shows. Now, they're a mixture of rap and violence in very unique appearances. Ended up getting them work both in the WWE and in WCW, but they were initially big-time fans of ECW. They're hardcore uh, that kind of grungy, independent feel, that's what really drove them there. Um, and it was interesting because this is a quote from Paul Heyman. He said, they were obviously huge wrestling fans who had the good taste to decide to come to ECW programs. I have no problem using the ICP on future ECW events and would go as far as to suggest that if their schedule would get a little more flexible, that we would exploit their talents a little more prominently. Now, that was Paul Heyman. Now, Paul would also interact with fans, much like we talked about in the Brian Pillman episode. 
that um, he would try to find ways to interact with fans. He would try to find ways to reach out to the fan bases. And like I said before, there was an American online chat where Paul would answer questions. So they were trying to do the best they could because they knew from a financial standpoint, they didn't have the marketing um, budget. They didn't have the promotions budget, but they did know with the advent of the internet that what they could do is still reach uh, as many people as they possibly could to promote the ECW product. Continuing a trend of projects that Paul was working on, in September of 96, Paul was negotiating to put ECW on pay-per-view. Now, he was convinced that the company could make real money. As we talked about earlier in this chapter, you know, ECW did not have the abilities to actually turn a profit because of their high payroll and because of the fact they could only pack so many people in the ECW arena and that he was not willing to go ahead and change venues for the sake of making money because of his loyalty to the ECW arena, but he did determine what happens if we ran pay-per-views from the ECW arena that would allow the company to make real money. Now, ECW had a loose affiliation with the WWF, but that would grow stronger too as the two sides came to a general terms on an agreement that they would work an angle with each other, pitting the two companies. It started in September of 1996 at the WWF's Mind Games pay-per-view, which was actually headlined by former ECW wrestler Mick Foley, who is now wrestling as Mankind. He was challenging Shawn Michaels for the WWF Championship. Now, during an early match between JBL, John Bradshaw Layfield, and Juan Rivera, also known as Savio Vega, the two were brawling at ringside until the Sandman decided to put his hands on Layfield. Layfield turned only to be confronted by both the Sandman and Tommy Dreamer. Later, Tass decided to jump the guardrail and he paraded around ringside with a sign he was holding up, says Sabu fears Taz. So, an interesting story about this was the agreement that Paul and Vince made to work with each other. Obviously, WWE was needing a shot in the arm. 1996 Really, when you talk about where the WWE, WWF was at the time, they were rebuilding. You know, just like post-1993, when a lot of the stars had left, you know, the WWF was very desperate right now. They were not uh, garnering very many people coming to their shows. And you have to understand also, in 1996, WCW Monday Nitro was being launched by Eric Bischoff on Ted Turner's TNT Network. And a lot of wrestlers at the time who were, their contracts were going to expire had decided to not renew their contracts with the WWE. They decided to go ahead and explore work elsewhere. And what better way could Ted Turner, Eric Bischoff, and WCW do than to go ahead and scoop up WWE's talent by giving them bigger contracts, more guaranteed money, a more of a guaranteed downside. And so that was really what was going on. So you know, WCW was fleecing WWE's roster. That was happening. And the people that the WWE had at the time in 1996, it was struggling. It really was struggling. Like I had alluded to before, attendance was down. This might have been one of the lowest points in WWE's history because there was a point in time, if you remember the Monday Night Roars, the 83 weeks, WWE almost went out of business. Like, that was no joke. That was legitimately real. And Vince McMahon realized that I got to do something. So, you know, let's go ahead and let's bring in this other faction that's up in the Northeast. Let's work a deal with them. 
let's kind of have this thing going back and forth between our guys and their guys. It would make it interesting. It would make compelling television. But the one thing that he didn't do was Vince did not smarten up anyone in the WWE outside of a few people. So there were people that were backstage in the WWE's event that really thought it was a legitimate fight that there were people who were jumping over the guardrail from an independent promotion that were trying to seize the moment and uh, steal a little fanfare away from them. So that's how Vince was trying to keep the reality as close as possible. And in his defense, he believed that he he had told everybody that this was a deal that he had worked out with Paul, that it would not have been, it would not have had that authentic ECW fight feel that they both were going for. So in continuing in 96, I told you we were going to readdress Kimona. Kimona Wanalea decided that she was done with ECW. So a lot of people were wondering, well, what was going on with that? Well, as we had talked about, you know, Paul couldn't keep up with payroll, that the company was losing money. Kimona specifically was having some issues with her, her payouts, and she decided that she was going to leave even though she was in the midst of doing a lesbian storyline with Beulah McGillicuddy, she ended up leaving because she was offered more money to go back to her previous job being an exotic dancer. Well, some things were going on here. On November 1st, which is in the fall of 1996, there was an event held in Staten Island, New York, which drew 735 people with a gate of a little over $14,000. Unfortunately, the building was without heat, and the temperature was right around the freezing point. For all the advanced problems that ECW was having, this was definitely not helping the situation. Now, people who knew both Todd Gordon and Paul Heyman voiced their concerns that what Paul was doing for ECW was a little too much, a little too fast. Paul had these grandiose ideas of what he wanted to do with the company. However, a lot of people quickly realized that things were not coming to fruition. Paul would have these great, huge ideas. He would share them with people. It made people buy into the concept to stick around the company, but very few times did these things ever happen. Now, Gordon supporters said that Gordon believed that Heyman's expansion was fiscally foolish and that the company could end up going in one of two areas uh, that he would not support. Now, ECW had survived for years off of tape trading, which was the tape sales and the arena ticket sales, but Heyman was convinced that going on to pay-per-view was the key for ECW's long-term survival, and once he purchased controlling interest in ECW from Todd Gordon, he started moving towards making pay-per-views a reality. Now, ECW did see some marginal growth at this time, but things were still difficult for them from a money standpoint. Paul decided that the next thing he was going to do, let's add more stars. The newest addition in the fall slash early winter of 96 was a guy by the name of Matt Heisen. He was actually a third grade teacher, originally from Rhode Island, but he decided to get into the wrestling industry and he was dubbed Spike. So that's kind of what was happening in the summer slash fall of 1996 so once again injuries are starting to pile up paul has his loyalty to the ecw arena he realizes he's not being able to make payroll some stars are starting to leave nitro is starting up vince is scared of nitro and the fact that he has declining ratings and 
tickets to house sales. So he starts working again with ECW, and uh, Paul continues to try to be the rah-rah guy in ECW, telling people, no, we're going to get there, we're going to get there, but it never really happens. So chapter 12 we're going to go into is going to be one that I know a lot of people are going to be extremely interested in. It's been a topic that's been talked about so much, and for one evening, I don't know if I've known very many wrestling angles that have gotten as much attention as they have. Chapter 12 focuses on mass transit. And uh, if you're a big fan of New Jack, definitely check out Dark Side of the Ring. They did an episode on New Jack in which did specifically address the mass transit situation. And it gives a little bit more background to what was going on with that whole situation as well. But that's going to do it for this week of Overbooked. Like I said before, I do appreciate you guys bearing with us here. We decided to go ahead and uh, not air the show on Monday in respect to allowing people to spend time um, celebrating what the holiday was, was supposed to be about. And that's remembering all the hardworking men and women and remembering those people. And um, maybe just kind of taking a little breather from all the craziness that's been going on with society as well. All right, guys, that's going to do it. Next time we chat, it'll be Chapter 12, Mass Transit. But that's going to do it. I'll catch you next time. I'm Mike Freeland.